I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today's DevOps Lunch and Learn was for May 11th, and we are starting to do more agenda planning. So in both this session and the strategy session, we want to bring in a broader community voice through having uh, shared leadership. And so we spent the, the time planning the topics that we want to talk about, but we never just talk about the agenda, we also talk about the topics. So in this session, uh, you are going to hear us discussing topics in depth that we want to talk about in even more depth. So we talk about learning DevOps and tech roadmaps and how to get up to skills and pipelines, 5G, um, release management. These are topics that we want to dig into more. And we talk about it enough that it's actually laying out the challenges in the industry. And I think you'll enjoy that conversation. And also, we hope you'll come join us for those specific topics. We're putting together the dates so you can come in and see that one topic or just join us whenever you want. I'm looking forward to seeing you there. Thanks. If you're going to go down that road, I, I would have talked maybe more about um, uh, organization of, of DevOps inside of companies and you know how it gets set up for success, right? Sounds so I, great. I think about, um, you know, full cycle teams versus let's create a DevOps team versus let's create a platform theme and which of those things actually works and which of those things don't. That's perfect. Yeah. yeah, I would love that because my role is platform engineer, but I want to work towards DevOps. And I know there's just a ton of gaps to fill and trying to figure out you know, where to focus. So that'd be great. Yeah, this is the first time I'm looking at this site, roadmap.sh. Uh, Severin, am I pronouncing your name correctly? Yeah, it's Severin. Severin, sorry. Uh, is this is this a known site? Does anybody else know of this roadmap.sh? <laughs> um, uh, it might be. I um, I know it's used for like boot camps. I but this is oh okay. Yeah. This is the first time I saw it. Okay, no, that's that's fairly extensive in terms of component listing yeah um <laughs> like it's almost like the cncf landscape uh not quite as intimidating <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah I, i've seen this roadmap before it's oh. uh it, it's uh it's frequently posted in in, in like yeah, introductory and on, on, on beginner comments uh it, it comes up uh periodically on, on, on Reddit as well. Um, yeah, my take is like fr from a professional perspective, so someone who has been in the DevOps field, uh, I see like obvious gaps in there, uh, but uh, trying to look at it uh, from, the, from the other perspective as someone who's entering it, I think this is perhaps uh a little bit too daunting uh and particularly since devops is when I mean, it, it's not a domain specific field um and trying trying to to put like cross domain trial knowledge in, 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 into one single image uh is certainly hard um i would have probably broken this down in, in, into various tracks uh, so that uh, there's not as many branches in, in, in a single image. 
Um, but it, it would be good to to get the like said the first impressions from other people on the matter as well. Well, one of the things that would be good is to identify where specialties occur and be able to say this should be a drill down and collapse it all up into uh, an expandable seg segment so that there's the general and then uh, there are drill down points within it, which mm -hmm. would simplify the graph a little bit. Well, it wouldn't, it would reduce the number of boxes, but it still might leave the uh, graph itself fairly uh, complex, but it's still easier to see like one box instead of 10 boxes underneath it and a couple extra branches. Exactly. Yeah, my, my suggestion would be, you know, if somebody wants to uh, quote unquote become a DevOps even if it's a specialist, right? Rather than following this very prescriptive path, like learning a programming language, and, and these really are like imperative styles of programming languages, right? Um, rather than that, you could start saying, you know, here is a superficial understanding of DevOps, and then you can start double clicking on each, right? For the most part, DevOps as used in the most sophisticated enterprises for programming languages, right? They, I mean, very few, unless you start building components, are using logic and programming languages. Most of them are declarative templates, right? So you have these JSON YAML templates that describe the infrastructure, whatever state you want that to be in, depending upon the environment. Uh, it, this is fairly large undertaking to learn a programming language. I mean, you know, just without getting philosophical on programming languages, right? There's a huge sprawl on what you choose, where you choose it. Same with OS concepts, right? So you could just consume, say, a machine, VM, you know, host OS, um, you know, to a certain extent, even containers, without really, really getting deep into, you know, OS fundamental, even OS fundamentals, right? Uh, it's you could, you know, I mean, because if you take this strict path, then it would take you like, you know, two years to get down to the bottom. <laughs> and by that time, the head has changed, right? Yeah. yeah. There's also yeah. perhaps opportunity to invert this roadmap because, I mean, people who are in DevOps are, and, and, and this is my personal opinion, but uh, I, I believe that we are, by and large, a problem-solving community. So instead of, instead of starting with a solution instead of in, in search of a problem, we, we typically start with, with a problem and say, okay, which tools do we have that let us solve this and, and work our way back on the tree from there? Right. But even higher level than that, if I, if I look at that, um, that roadmap and I back out, right, it starts with a roadmap for an SRE. Well, that's a philosophy, right? One <laughs> I don't happen to agree with. I understand it can be used effectively. Um, but, you know, starting with the fact that my model here is going to be site reliability engineering and error budgets and that kind of stuff, you know, it almost would have been useful to say, what are the different thoughts on how one practices DevOps? Because the tools are a secondary piece to it. You, you've kind of got to decide how you want to organize your, your DevOps uh, program together. And so SRE is one, you know, the, the full cycle development is another. So there's different choices you need to make up front. 
And then that decides how you organize your teams together. And the tooling is really second nature to that. I, I shouldn't say that. SRE implies that there's some common tooling between two organizations. But, um, you know, that's what I think is kind of missing. And then, like, in this map here, for example, the whole SecOps is not mentioned. GitOps or BotOps or, you know, other choices like that really aren't even made yet. So until you kind of know where you want to go play, you, you don't necessarily know what the tools are underneath it. Yeah, no, true. Absolutely. Right. The personas and the responsibilities for the personas, they even they change within each enterprise and outfit and the maturity model, right? Where the company is in their cloud maturity model. Um, the SRE persona at a fairly rigid enterprise, you still have SREs, right? Because they existed pre-cloud. Um, that responsibility roles and then the tool sets would be different than somebody who is, you know, halfway through than somebody who's cloud native. Absolutely. Well, and also, like you said, the, the maturity in some ways ties into the size of the company and uh, the number of hats that get worn by an individual ops person gets larger is larger in a small company and vice versa. Usually. So you have to be much more of a generalist in a small company and be able to solve anything and be willing to take on anything, no matter what, where it is. Right. So, you know, if somebody is launching their journey, uh, that that's why the suggestion was, right. You know, get a superficial understanding of the landscape and then depending upon what the needs are within the enterprise or where you want to grow, then perhaps, you know, you could start like zeroing again. Um, again, yeah. it, it's a biased opinion, but that's, that's what I would suggest. It's good. Everyone. I've easily yep. spent an hour <laughs> going back through and making some recommendations, but I think that'd be fun. Well, I've always been a start in the middle and work out in both directions kind of person. So <laughs> would, would it be useful to do like, you know, I was thinking in that, just breaking down Linux and going through like how, you know, a, a, like some of these deep, deeper training pieces. I mean, that's what a lunch and learn is about, like having somebody sit down and talk about Ansible or somebody or talk about other pieces. Um, I'm tempted to go to reverse direction. Okay. Right. I, I wonder whether people can actually define it between infrastructure platform and, and software as a service. <laughs> oh dear you, you're, you're in Linux kernel theory which I used to teach <laughs> and that's enough to explode anyone's head <laughs> there's a theory behind the kernel <laughs> unfortunately many over time some well see that's the key theory. there are many theories and it doesn't boil down to a single one which is also very matters. different from kernel methods I, I curiosity when you when you when you I was just kind of curious, like when when you're trying to get into the DevOps side of things, you know, what organizations are you kind of working with? Are they like newbies to this this process? Do they have some experience on it? Um, I'm kind of curious who, who you're trying to build this roadmap for. Are you asking me? Yes. 
Yeah, well, I'm technically a senior DevOps engineer at Whole Foods, but we are really not. We're just platform engineers, and we write a bunch of YAML scripts all day, and we're trying to gravitate towards that. And as I'm looking at other opportunities, I'm realizing how false my job title is. And so I want to actually, you know, do what I say that I do. And um, so, and I get the training groups because I um, help teach a little bit at ACC. And so that's kind of where we get these, like, uh, we don't teach DevOps, but we get these kinds of like uh, roadmaps and found the DevOps one and figured I could, you know, take my own medicine a little bit and create a structure around my own learning. So. So out of curiosity, how much of the Amazon uh, world has come into Whole Foods? Oh, we're 100% AWS. So it's a little frustrating because there's great tools like Jenkins that I know about, but I've never had the opportunity to use. And we're really um, strictly stuck with Amazon tools. So, yeah. I, I wanted to point out something that came in the news along these lines, especially with the DevOps, and that is that the Russian hackers are pretty much left to their own devices, but they de they write their tools specifically in languages that are seldom used in Russia so that they can't be used against Russian sites. So they, they, they focus their breakage on, on uh, tools and processes and languages other than what is Russian-centric. Hmm. That makes me wonder what what is being used in, in, in Russia in terms of programming languages and tools. That makes me wonder too, but I I suspect it's not <laughs> Python. <laughs> it's oh god, I'm going to make a horrible pun, so forgive me. It's pipeline. <laughs> it's, it's in gas pipeline. Oh. oh. Sorry, I told you it was going to be horrible. Well, you made it horrible by trying to explain it, right? Oh, dear. It, it would have been fine, right? <laughs> at least have the satisfaction. Hey, I got the joke. Yeah, it, it, it's, it, it actually became my, a dad my, my joke when you explained it. <laughs> oh, dear. All right. <laughs> my apologies to everybody on both fronts for the joke and the explanation. That's funny. That's cool. Do we want to put some more dates in and, and, and pick topics? If we're three ahead, then I'm, I'm actually fine then scheduling on top of this afterwards. Well, like one of the things that yeah. you've got GitOps there, and one of the things that would huh? be interesting to me is there are alternatives. There are communities outside of Git or at least GitHub. So we know that there's GitLab and a few others, but what what are people using besides Git and how is that working mm. for them? Well, actually on the, 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 the YouTube video that I posted uh, a bit earlier uh, about the, um, from, from GitHub's con, uh, it was the one of the one of the key things that was mentioned there, and with regards to what you just said, is that despite it being named GitOps, it does not require Git. Uh, it, it just it's just a it's just 
it's just named GitOps because Git is happens to be popular. But the 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 key concept is that you you put the your desired state in a declarative version controlled repository. So it, I mean it can be Git, it could be Mercurial. Um, I mean, technically, it could even be Subversion or yeah, Subver any any source control management, right? I mean, I've seen people yeah. use GitOps functionality with Bitbucket, like if they are entirely in Atlassian job, right? They, they just go. But it's the same principles. Workflow is what's what defines GitOps. Yeah. Cool. Exactly. Cool. And so, yeah, it's like like um, Ajit said, uh, Atlantia. Atlassian shops use Bit, Bitbucket, and and the diff it would be interesting. Just a little, you know, is that transferable across um, DevOps? It's like if you are used to one, how difficult it is it to uh, migrate into being useful in another? It's it's not as much now. Um, you go five six years back it was a lot harder for people to bend their brains around this because keep in mind this, a, a lot of the functionality when I talk about workflows is things that get Bitbucket, et cetera. They started pulling a lot of the functionality that was traditionally covered in change management control, right? Uh, because change management control systems weren't able to get agile enough, right? Their idea of change management control is extremely restrictive and it's not software uh, software run, for instance, right? right. So it's not automated. Um, it's very service desk oriented, right? Create a ticket, somebody else approves yep. and the change management process comes in. And because change management control wasn't moving as fast as agile methodologies really needed in particular, not just, you know, software development methodologies and, and agile, um, cloud orchestration and management, right? CICD pipelines, right? Anything else that is software driven operations, they would conflict, they would collide with source uh, with your regular change management control. So a lot of these tool sets within the CICD enabling ecosystem, they started taking in what traditionally was change management control. They started taking that on. So, you know, a PR in Git, that is functionally, it serves almost all of the responsibilities that change management control is supposed to do, right? Go through change advisory board, et cetera. All that is pulled into Git. Um, companies, I know companies that are service now companies, they feel locked in because they go, well, we're using it. We are paying this exorbitant sum to run it as a freaking ticket ticketing system. That's not what service now promises to be right. But that's all they're using it for because they're locked in. Um, right. what you now see more and more in agile CICD pipelines is for audit purposes, after the job is done, you'll invoke a ticket just so somebody knows that, ah, this is when it was done. So you'll have, you know, two sources, like Git logs will tell you still that this was done, but there was, you know, for the non-Git user, there'll be some ticket that'll be open as well. Um, but that's what it, what, what has become now. Um, so it's, it's been extremely scattered. So the reason I bring that up is, you know, Atlassian competes with service now, for instance, but, Alassian started off as an RT tool set, right? It's a request tracker. Um, right. So what the open source RT was, uh, that's that's what Alassian was when they started, but they have somehow managed to 
innovate internally and keep up. But they, they also acquired a lot of tools. Oh yeah, absolutely. Their, uh, absolutely. But even you know, you, you could you, you could say, yeah, you know, uh, acquisition as a path to innovation. But you know, somebody still has to make a decision to what to acquire and then build it in. Especially mm-hmm. companies that follow this product-led growth model, where your GTM strategy is entirely product-led growth. You're bringing in somebody from an adjacent ecosystem. You make this acquisition, and then for the most part, that's why acquisitions end up bombing within the companies because they have, you know, one GTM strategy, one product growth strategy. Then they acquire something because they can't innovate, and that product that they acquire dies within because rest of the the core functionality of product led growth doesn't incorporate it in. You know, <laughs> ServiceNow does this all the time, right? They have they have they're sitting on insane piles of money, but you know, no matter how many acquisitions they make, that's where companies go to die. <laughs> uh, we saw this earlier on with, uh, well, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> no, you're fine. We <laughs> saw this earlier on with the CA. Yeah. And I, I think that, that gets back to my, that gets back to my reality. You, you really, so I think we're, they got to die is you go into a company that isn't organizationally ready to take on that new paradigm. Yep. Right. And, and so now you kind of go to die. What, what I would have said, the, the that, so I think I've said it before, and, and you put the observability, observability piece up there, Rob, I, I would love to talk about what's broken in CICD, because I think a lot's completely broken <laughs> in the current tool system. Yes. Well, uh, and, and that is actually, my, my, I believe, one of the things that, that has driven GitHub's adoption in, in, in that, the, particularly the CD part of CICD, um, is, is, as you said, it's broken. Uh, and mm-hmm. GitOps is a, a way to separate that uh, and work with a less broken uh, approach. Um, and, and in, my, in my experience, uh, one of the, the, the fastest adopters uh, of the GitOps methodology is actually security teams because GitOps, one of the, the key premises is that your CI platform is no longer touching your production system. It is, but I'd also point out in the security world for almost two decades, we've been exchanging events and doing configurations off it and a bunch of other pieces to it. So it was probably not foreign to them because exactly. we did have a lot in security anyways. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, like we, you, 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 give, you give a security team two proposals. One, one says to use GitOps and the other one is do you say like Jenkins or, or Tekton or, or, or so, which requires access to your production system, they're obviously going to gravitate towards GitOps because it's, it enforces the, the access separation. Yeah, I think, you know, but you got to remember like, you know, GitHub uses bot ops. So. <laughs> yeah, well. Bot ops? It's still better than chat ops. Bot ops? Yeah. They, they deploy through chat. That's their sign-off mechanism. Oh, okay. Is that, do you consider that different than chat ops? I would, okay. I, I think that's the term I heard them use, so that's what's stuck in my mind. Okay. 
Yeah, I, I think chatops is more Slack specific, but yeah, they, they, they use more or less the, the same approach, which I, 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 I it, it chafes me. <laughs> okay. So I, I want to just comment on something that Ajit said about uh, Atlassian. Atlassian actually started as an issue tracker even before requests. It was back literally tracking bugs, plus they had their, um, their little uh, wiki. And I think oh, part yeah. of their success was that they saw how people were using their tools and using them in ways that, that they hadn't thought of and expanded and integrated those processes and figured out when it was reasonable to buy a tool that was already doing that and that was integratable. And so they've created quite an ecosystem of tools that actually play well with each other and let you move from one to the other fairly seamlessly. So I think that's where it lasts. No, 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 you're right. But when I say glorified RT is, you know, this is yeah. before you had Git and everything else, people were using the same RT. I'm talking about the open source RT tool for yes. bug tracking, you know, issue tracking requests, anything like service desk, but also bug tracking because the framework is more or less the same. So right. I'm talking about, you know, open source way back when open source uh, RT was being used across for bug tracking, for help desk, anything and everything. Yes. Yeah, like like and back Atlassian, in the days of track. Yeah, yes. yeah exactly. <laughs> back in and, the day. And Atlassian actually kind of heralded the death of all those other bug trackers out there because it was free to the open source community. And so they, uh, it actually gained lots of traction, plus open source would fix the problems and show Atlassian directions they should be moving with the, uh, the uh, sellable product. So it, it was uh, interesting, but there were lots of good bug trackers out there that did more than what Jira did uh, that you could use for issue and request and everything else. And they're all dead now. I think Bugzilla is still out there just because of Mozilla. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Hey, just, I, they got two cans of worms out there right here. Um, one, you wrote down the switch automation. We had had a conversation once around some of the packet filtering and where that was going. And I, I thought Ajit was going to do a session for us on that and do a little bit deeper dive on that piece to it. Um, so I, I'd like to see that. And then I, it'd be interesting to have a conversation around um, you know, distributed systems in kind of this modern age and where things are at and, and or more importantly, where things are not at, right? So I think most of the, the modern tools are really good in a, a single cluster, maybe an availability zone type of piece to it. But when you start going to multi-locations um, and that kind of stuff, there's just a swath of missing, missing technology. Um, yep. Could be interesting to have a conversation around that. Yeah, like uh, particularly Kubernetes, which again, like we've beaten that topic to death, but um, its control plane is really, really unfriendly to high latency environments. Like uh, the default configuration, I believe, is 
10 millisecond latency for the control plane before the things time out. So if you're trying to, to run like a Kubernetes cluster across multiple zones uh, or regions, it's, uh, it's, it just doesn't work out of the box. Oh yeah. Uh, and actually going back to uh, being conference time, there there's lots and lots of edge and distributed and uh, real time edge and stuff coming up in all these conferences. So uh, something I'm interested in, maybe I can put some, pull something together. It would be nice to have a discussion as to what reality is versus um, uh, fantasy on some of these places and, and whether we will get there by 2030. Uh, we really haven't seen how 5G really plays out and what, what can be done with it. We just have all these uh, sales pitches that say, this is, this is what it does. And we're starting to get to the point where there's 5G enough out there that we can get war stories. Yeah, I, I think 5G and Edge, I think it bears. Oh, now you're on a hot topic. Um, I, I, I actually would love if, if y'all, I mean, I, I see this as a distributed infrastructure challenge, which is not specific to Edge, but we can talk about Edge. Yeah, but I mean, most of what drives 5G is not the art of what's possible. It's the, the art of what makes economic sense. Yeah. Right? And so all the shit they talked about in 5G deployments, you'll never see that. There's exactly. no economic driver for it to be there. So, so <laughs> what actually is available for real use and uh, how good does it perform? And I think that's going to be way out at the end of the summer, that discussion, because it's going to, there's going to be lots of stuff coming through the various conferences and playing on each other. I mean, the, the bigger thing in that is going to be the evolution of 6G if you're talking 2030. <laughs> yeah, which, which, which does have for that <laughs> more potential, right? Um, to to fulfill on it, but I don't think five G is going to live up to the hype. Um, despite my current employer's enthusiasm, um, and I think what's more important to it, I think when you get to five G and sixty, I think you're going to see the vendor landscape change radically. Yes. Uh, I'd like to actually see how that all plays out because Huawei was such a big player in the 5G and I'm not convinced that whether it'll be allowed to play or whether it'll come up with a competing standard or some such because they're, it's essentially John's, uh, Ericsson and Huawei uh, and Nokia's kind of been handed this stuff, but 6G is going to be a whole different set of players if we continue to treat China the way we do. Well, uh, six, 6G specs are still being written. Nothing has been locked in. Uh, there've just been design suggestions on what 6G may look like. 5G, of course, right? It will, th there are problems and, you know, things in the market would need to really start changing and other consumption models need to start adapting to some of those changes. So it's not gonna be one leading the other, it's gonna be kind of a flywheel. <laughs> uh, and if everything works out, then yes, you'll start seeing more 5G adoption, but 
you know, there are so many unknowns right now, but even within there'll be different segments in which you can start using the developments, advancements that have been made in 5g, but you know, this end to end use cases for 5g, um, they, I mean, you know, so many things would have to work for it to really show up as an end to end solution. Um, I, I, I wonder what is, what is currently the, the gap between 5g and, uh, last mile, uh, like landline or, uh, wired based, uh, internet. Like, performance uh, wise, what do you mean? Yeah. Well, the performance wise and scalability wise. Like uh, at what point does it become does it become practical for an ISP to say, "Hey, we, we're going to start offering 5G or 6G modems for the home," instead of uh, having to put down uh, fiber to 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 the nodes in, in new suburbs? Well, I think that's I think look, so you're getting on a couple of points. So two two points um, I'd make on this is. Yeah, pre pre five G and that stuff. I was assigned to go to a project with LG, and we're looking at trying to do smart TV into the homes. Um, we had some relatively low latency budgets, and you know, part of what I went back and looked at was what was the block broadband rollout across the major metropolitan areas. And even though the technology capability was there, the average consumer was still buying the ten dollar a month service because that was good enough to meet their needs. So there's, there's kind of the economic profile, what are people going to spend, right? And if it's good enough, they're going to generally opt in for the lowest cost um, component that's out there. And if you look at the commercials we see right now where people are touting 5G speeds, right? Originally, we were talking it's going to be one to five milliseconds, then people were building for 10 milliseconds. But if you watch the commercials and they're running their speed tests, it's between 20 to 25 milliseconds. And, and the reason is I don't need to deploy any more. I didn't need to deploy more deeply than that because it meets the consumer demand and it meets the business demand. So there is a market demand that drives technology adoption that goes into it. What's changed with 5G on the economics is I don't need to own land anymore, right? I don't need to trench fiber, right? Yeah. And, and, and that's exactly what, why I'm wondering, like, what 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 is the turning point on, on economics for that? Small cell. I mean, it, it's the price points for five G right now are are close enough to. I'm still not going to get what I'm getting on my 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 cable lines here um, for five G, but I also would tell you it wouldn't make a difference. I don't really need four hundred meg unless I'm doing up, up downloading and uploading large files into it. So I think there's a, a, a game from becoming a real estate game to becoming an airspace game. I think that's a shift that's going on in the industry. And then the other thing we started with 5G was kind of to Rob's last point on that. It was the disaggregation of the entire RAN network, right? To where all the components could be broken out, standardized, and you could get inter and intermix different components from different players into it. And I think in the world of 5G, there's still a bunch of stuff that people do like radio friendly pacing and other things to manage power requirements. But I think even those go away further in the future. So you want to look at things that could become you know, open source projects or just off the shelf projects. Most of the software to drive radio networks, I think over the next 10 years will become that. So I don't necessarily think that it's Huawei versus Ericsson versus whoever. I, I think that the carriers are forcing them to break their software down 
to, to basically minimize their their locks on or, or lock in particular vendors. What is the what what is the situation with uh, like airspace uh, congestion? Um, like it. It, let's let's assume that suddenly everyone with a cable or, or DSL or, or fiber to the home line decided they wanted to switch to a 5G or 6G. Would the would there be too much interference or, or would it work fine just just like or would it be like a like a portion of the existing cell phone network? Interference, you're talking about wave bands? I mean, yep. the interference on the wave bands is basically in the cities, right? It, it, it's a narrow band, so they're bouncing it off of buildings to get these signals around, and they're working really hard to try to figure it. And quite frankly, they did better than they did. Yeah, you know, when you get to rural America or urbanized America, I, I don't think that's an issue at all. Yeah, but won't, won't for rural America, isn't they're just going to go to what, Starlink or, you know, some. Get the idea of putting 5G is, is short enough range. At some point, you're just going to be <laughs> going to need a tower per uh, house anyway. Just use, just send them to Starlink, or I guess they already yeah. have. That's a that's a good point. 4G <laughs> coverage, or and, I mean, it's not, definitely not. happening in rural Canada. Yeah, well, the they're saying that right now. Some people are saying Starlink will have problems growing beyond 500,000 uh, subscribers accounts uh, out there. But with 5G, what you'd need to do is actually put uh, a repeater on, you know, like every fifth telephone pole or something like that to get to rural America. So it's not a single tower. It's actually, uh, and the only advantage that they have right now is the fact that the if the house has electricity, they can actually use the telephone poles to put on the repeaters. But I don't think that's true. Though. Then you've got then you've got at you least know, in backup the US and power. There's well, sorry, I mean it's all right. I, I should get I, yeah, you know what? Yeah. Let me ping boards. I said I'd get him on, and I forgot to do. Oh, it. I'd love to. I'd love to get Lawrence on. That'd be amazing. Yeah, because yeah, because yeah. my understanding of five G is you've got about. Uh, uh, it's not, it's like a fifth of a mile or, uh, might be a quarter of a mile, you know, something around there. And then you have to have another, and that might be the American version of 5G because of the choices made of, of, uh, the, I, I think you're, I think, I think you're looking at building interference as being the, the limiting factor and how far Actually, no. It's it's the uh, uh, the power broadcast. Um, everything is attenuation been, problem. Yeah, because uh, literally there are streets where you've got it's straight on, but you still have to put those repeaters. Well, those repeaters are small cells. Uh, those repeaters are what? They're small cells. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So right. you, that's, but you, that's a different thing, right? So the the, the 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 main signaling. So the small cells are basically your your broadband connectivity, and they're still tied to the main B, which is intended to be more for voice and and 
in lightweight traffic than the small cell components, but they're definitely not repeaters. They're definitely part of the architecture. Well, yeah, they're part of the architecture, but you still need to have equipment out there uh, on a, uh, uh, it, you need more smaller, but more equipment to reach the same, to cover the same area. Right. So the, the, the difference being that I can still pull anywhere from probably 60 to 100 megs per second off the ENET B without getting the small cells. The small cells are to give you gig plus performance. Uh, but it's solving two very different problems. Okay. Okay. So, uh, and that's one of the things that, that what I've been reading, they don't differentiate that, unfortunately. Yeah. And yeah, because I, I actually was pinging with Boris a couple of weeks ago. Because they're using the, the Facebook tip stuff. Um, and like one thing that's different about that is that even when you're getting to the ENOB, that's not where the packet gateway is, even in the 5Gs. Uh, and he was pointing out it actually is with, with the tip stuff. They're actually terminating packets at the tower. Um, and he's thinking, they're all in a world. That's where they're taking all their stuff right now. So he'd be a good one to talk to. Uh, okay. Sounds like we got a future topic. Yeah. Let me make sure I get it. I'll ping him now. We actually have a specific him. topic around 5G. Bob, did you mention uh, Secrets hey. Manager as well? Secret <laughs> that was the topic I had thought of today, but I'd love to have an expert for it. Yeah. Um, if that is a, I, as a specific roadmap, as a, as like we're, we do our own secrets management, but we have customers who are asking to connect to external secrets management, which makes a ton of sense. So I was hoping to talk about it. So you're talking about, you know, as a service, like a vault or like GCP has a respectable secrets manager or. It's, it's either, I mean, most of our stuff is on premises, so more like a vault, but, um, but the idea of how you get and control secrets, I was, I was like, a vault thing would be cool, but I'm more interested in like how it works, how we're trusting it, you know, what, what's, because at the end of the day, like if you're pulling stuff out of secrets and automation, mm -hmm. it, how protected is it? But I get it at the same time, we need it. Um, so yeah, there's a whole okay. conversation about secrets. I have a couple people in mind. Let me poke them. Thanks. That would be awesome. Yep. Yeah, uh, I have someone else, someone in mind as well. Um, uh, he, he, he would be able to give the perspective uh, not so much from the from using Vault, but from using like SOPs and uh, sealed secrets. That's I'm not looking for a specific tool, although I'm always happy to have somebody take a tool down to the bits and bytes. But no, that would be great. Just let's yeah. pick a time. That's exactly what I was hoping to do by putting this out. Is have somebody come back, have one of y'all come back and say, I ah, know there's the person, let's have them do a brown bag on it. Cool. Uh, let's see if I can find. Uh... This is awesome. Uh, one, I love that we freeform on the topic a little bit. And uh, I'm excited to have a list of top of things for us to explore and, and get out there and have people you know, start, start, start coming in for a specific knowledge item also. So I think it'll expand the audience. All right, and with that, we are at the top of the hour. Next week is CentOS and the Linux and, the, and what I would call the great Linux reshuffle. Possibly. All right. Cool. All right, thanks. I'll post Bye. that a little bit.
Make Pat, sure Pat's Patrick. on that one. I'm going to ping him specifically and see if we can get him in video. Cool. Have a good one, guys. All right, everybody. Thanks. Cheers. Cool. Thanks. Another uh, rousing conversation about all topics DevOps. Uh, it's amazing to me when the group sits down and starts thinking about what they want to learn, how broad those topics are. Uh, and there's so much to cover. We're going to start planning out our agendas more, so please come in, uh, plan to join us, and talk through what's on your mind, what you want to learn. These are brown bag sessions, and uh, every level of learning is good. And if there's something you want to teach, please come in, share it. That's how we're all going to get smarter. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.